In 2002, the American Board of Internal Medicine and other physician associations jointly authored a document entitled Medical Professionalism in the New Millennium, a Physician Charter. In 10 years, the Physician Charter has advanced medical professionalism and addressed numerous challenges. Nearly 100,000 copies have been distributed, it's been translated into 12 languages, and is endorsed by more than 130 organizations worldwide, including ASN. It's also led to a threefold increase in journal articles about medical professionalism, with nearly 300 a year. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim speaks with ASN Counselor Donald Wesson, MD Fasson, about the creation of the Charter and its three guiding principles. So, Dr. Wesson, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. My pleasure to do so. What is medical professionalism? There are many definitions of medical professionalism, but I'll give you my personal one. Medical professionalism is the set of priorities that guide what we do in our day-to-day work as physicians. And my personal guidelines are what I call the three Ps, the patient, the public, and the profession, and in that order. So first, the patient's needs are primary, but the patient's needs are taken care of within the context of what's best for providing health care to the public. And then thirdly, we must always keep in mind that we are professionals and we act on behalf of the patient within the context of the public, but recognizing that we must also enhance the profession and what we do as physicians. So in 2002, why did the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, the American College of Physicians Foundation, and the European Federation of Internal Medicine come together to create the Medical Professionalism Charter? Well, if you'll remember, that was a difficult time economically for major industrialized societies. And given that healthcare is a major portion of the economies of these industrialized societies, I think increasing attention started to be paid to the cost of healthcare. Secondly, when we think about healthcare and what it costs, we start looking at the components of that. And physicians, of course, are a key component of that. And so the thought was that physicians may well have been contributing negatively to the increasing cost of health care at their benefit and, and at the expense of the patient. So I think that context increased the public suspicion that physicians were practicing their medicine not with the patient's best interest at heart, but with their own best interest at heart. Given that, that disturbing public a perception of the profession, the organizations thought it was important that we reestablish what the real priorities are for us as physicians and make that known to the public. So what's an example of the profession not acting in the best interests of the patients back in 2002? With the focus on trying to get care for the least payment coming from payors, including federal government, there was a fear in the community that less money was going to be paid for the same services that had previously been done. 
And so physicians were executing strategies to try to maintain their income in what they saw as a threatening reimbursement environment. And so some physicians set up practices, for instance, buying medical equipment that can provide tests from which they derived financial benefit and were at least perceived as steering patients to get those tests in facilities that they either owned or from which they benefited from the, the payments that the, the patients made. And so many in the public justifiably became concerned that physicians were ordering care for them, less so for their benefit, but more for the financial benefit of the physicians. The Charter has three fundamental principles. The, the primacy of patient welfare, it's defined as dedication to serving the interest of the patient. The principle of patient autonomy, defined as, quote, respect for the patient autonomy. And the principle of social justice, which is, quote, promote justice in the healthcare system, including the fair distribution of healthcare resources. How has the Charter succeeded during the past decade in accomplishing or supporting these principles? Well, let's talk about the primacy of patient welfare. As I said, that was the first of my P's. Major organizations of physicians, including specialists, have refocused their efforts in recent years on issues that benefit the patient and less so on those that benefit the physician. A recent example is the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation Choosing Wisely campaign that encourages physicians and physician groups to identify procedures that have little to no value to improving health but may have the risk of incurring harm and, of course, cost. And that focus has us to recognize that such tests can be expensive, possibly harmful, and if they don't contribute to improving the care of the patient, then they should not be done. Unfortunately, many of these tests have become routine in the practice of medicine, not because uh, physicians knowingly want to uh, do patients harm, but because many of us practice in ways that previous studies may have shown did not do harm to patients, but subsequent studies show that the benefits of these tests may be less than what we initially thought. So that's an example of physicians themselves coming together and deciding what are appropriate and not appropriate tests to do for the benefit of patients. So looking back over the past decade, how has the charter been less successful from your perspective? It's been less successful when physician organizations in particular focus on protecting the profession at the expense of the patient and the public. In my three Ps, the patient and the public were first ahead of the profession. And so often in times of stress, particularly economic stress, the natural tendency is to circle the wagons and protect the profession at the expense of the patient and the public. And unfortunately, that has occurred in some instances. But I think the majority of physicians still consider the patient and the public interest first Unfortunately, there are just instances of organizationally physicians focusing on their own welfare rather than putting patients in the public first. So there are the three principles, and then there are the ten commitments that are the foundation. 
One of the commitments relates to managing conflicts of interest. During the past decade, it seems as though the broader healthcare community has moved beyond where the charter was a decade ago in terms of its comments around managing conflicts of interest. And I think this dovetails to the comments you just made. If you were to revise the charter today, how would you revise it within the arena of conflicts of interest and managing perceived conflicts of interest? I would do it differently in terms of how we educate physicians as to what are conflicts of interest. So there are a number of studies that show that when you ask physicians issues related to conflict of interest and support of the physician charter, physicians overwhelmingly say they are in support of the tenets of the physician charter. In other words, that they support conducting their practice in a way that puts patients' needs first, public needs first, and their own needs, including their income, second. There has been no argument with that among physicians in the physician community. However, when you measure what physicians do, many times they are engaged in conflicted behavior and appear to be unaware that their behavior is a conflict with respect to a patient and public needs. So one thing that I would do is to be more aggressive in educating physicians as to what are and what are not uh, conflicts. And I'm confident that once physicians better recognize what are indeed conflicts, they will act accordingly and focus more on the patient interests rather than their own. So during your career, you've taught medical students, residents, and fellows. How do you teach them about medical professionalism, about the need to manage perceived conflicts of interest, about how to put the patient before the public, before the profession? All of us are parents, and we realize that the best example is walking the talk. You and I know that we often tell our children to do one thing, but if we do something different, it is what we do that our children follow. So as an educator in medicine, I, I make sure that I try to set the best example for our trainees. Very little things like making sure that the patients recognize that we're acting in their interest, you're courteous to them, uh, you discuss with the students why you're doing certain uh, procedures, and you conduct that discussion in front of patients so they recognize that you have their interests at heart, you want to explain to them, and do the right thing for them. With respect to things that happen outside of the patient's presence, you want to discuss these kinds of things openly and show that you are indeed acting in, in the, the patient's best interest. Same thing applies to how we do things in the research lab, that we are conducting ourselves ethically in the research lab, always with the patient's benefit at the top of our desires. It's walking the talk and not just talking the talk. How did the physicians in training react to that, to these types of discussions and, and to having you point out elements of professionalism as part of their training? They are enthusiastic about hearing this discussion. If you talk to uh, medical students and even residents who have completed their medical training, they come in with the idea that they want to act as professional uh, as they can. They're very idealistic, and I enjoy talking with young medical students and residents because they come in with the idea that they want to do the right thing for the right reasons for patients. 
Unfortunately, they see examples that are counter to that and are distressed by that. But in my experience, they still maintain their commitment to do the right thing for the right reason. So when they see a senior person in their environment demonstrating professionalism and articulating professionalism, and more importantly, pointing out instances that do not reflect professionalism and condemning that, they are very engaged in that conversation and and are inspired to uh, continue to move forward in their own idealism. You've mentioned team-based care, and the medical professionalism charter is a physician charter. How could the ABIM Foundation and the ACP Foundation and the European Federation of Internal Medicine revise the charter so that it could apply to all health professionals? That's a great question, and it's something that we at the uh, American Board of Internal Medicine have been discussing. We as kidney doctors, I think, have already been practicing team-based care, and I think we're likely the best subspecialists at doing so. For years, we've worked with nurses in the dialysis unit in our chronic kidney disease centers, dietitians, pharmacists. Just about every professional is represented on that team, and that team has worked very well. And I think the record supports that quality of care being delivered to dialysis patients has improved. The outcomes have improved, and I attribute that success to the functioning of the team. And so I think that the physician charter would certainly be benefited by focusing not just on the physician, but on the team of healthcare providers. And as I said, that the nephrology community provides the best example of that. Unfortunately, with the the non-physician members of the team being left out, at least called out in that charter, it gives the impression that they have less of a, if you will, professional contribution to that delivery of the team-based care, but nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, there are members of that team who spend more face-to-face time with the patient than do physicians. So certainly they are key components of the team, and we have to recognize them as such. As I think about the last decade, from 2002 to 2012, You've mentioned the increase in team-based care. I would argue that hospital medicine and the proliferation of hospitalists, which relates to your earlier point about handoffs and how patients are handled in different care settings, the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act, which created the bundled payment for end-stage renal disease through the Medicare program, as well as the Quality Incentive Program, so a major policy change for, for kidney care. And then the Affordable Care Act, the health reform bill, which also includes the Affordable Care Organizations. Those four major policy shifts and delivery shifts clearly influence the charter. Today, as you think about the issues and, and really going back to the principles under the charter in terms of patient welfare, patient autonomy, and social justice. Are we at a better place now, or what can we do to improve care for the patient and the public as well as improve the situation for the professionals? It's a great question. Uh, I, I do think that we are at a better place. It's going to be hard to argue that we're at a better place practically, that is, that patient outcomes are any better. But I think 
that the debate that we've been having over these kind of issues over the last two decades has helped identify things around which we should focus our efforts, team-based care. Secondly, just use of resources for the community and not just viewing the, the use of resources for a particular patient. Those are two examples that I can think of. But I would argue we're in a better place because our thinking has been honed by the debates that we've had over the last two decades or so. And I think that puts us in a better position to move forward in a way that will provide effective, high-quality care at a lower cost. The third thing is that the economy is really pushing us to be more lean in the use of our resources and in and of itself has forced the uh, the conversation to focus on the economy of healthcare and have us to do better in using these resources because our comparison with our sister countries across the world shows that there's a lot of opportunity for us to use our resources more efficiently. So earlier this year, you became the chair of the ABIM Foundation, and you've already mentioned the possibility of trying to revise the charter to expand it from physicians to all health professionals. What are some other things that you'd like the foundation to accomplish under your leadership? One of the things that the foundation has done well over the last 10 years is not only develop guideposts as to where we as physicians should go, maintenance of certification and quality of care and all of those things that the certification process is meant to enhance. We've done well in communicating and interacting with physician organizations, but they've been largely academic physician organizations. A great example is the American College of Physicians. I think going forward, we have to expand that engagement to include physicians on the front lines who are engaged in day-to-day -day practice. We still have to recognize a majority of physicians in this country still practice in small practices. Most of them do not practice in the large academic centers with whom we've been interacting for the past 10 years or so. I think our outreach has to expand to the uh, smaller physician practices to have them engaged in the efforts that we know improve uh, quality care and have them voluntarily sign on and not be forced to do so in some draconian way that might come out of our increasingly limited national finances. What's your biggest fear? My, my biggest fear is that physicians will be tempted to pursue their practices not guided by professionalism but purely by self-interest. The reimbursement that we will get for our services delivered is going to become increasingly limited. It's going to move from a fee-for-service structure to a broader payment for maintaining patient and population health rather than focusing on care for those who are sick. And my fear is, is that we will behave as businessmen simply conducting our practices in an effort to support our livelihood, but not be guided by the tenets of professionalism that prompted all of us to get into the medical profession in, in the first place. 
That's why I feel so strongly that we've got to rekindle that professionalism soul that got all of us involved in medicine that will make us better engaged in adjusting to and even leading some of the changes that are coming in the healthcare system that will allow us to continue to do the best for patients and not hunker down into some strategies that protect ourselves first and possibly at the expense of patients. And what are you most optimistic about? I'm optimistic about what I hear from physicians and other folks who have been thinking about this issue of health care and health care delivery going forward. I mentioned earlier, I just left the American Board of Medicine Foundation Forum where we spent three days talking just about these issues. And there's not only a lot of great ideas out there, some small successes that uh, healthcare systems presented, there's a lot of enthusiasm, not just in the healthcare provider community, but in the policy community and in the payor community to do something different and better. We all recognize that we can't continue as we are and that if we don't collaborate with each other, the mess that we're in will get worse. So I'm, I'm optimistic that there are great ideas, evidence of successes, and uh, collaboration among the important components and a willingness to make things better. So when I hear that from my colleagues, it makes me uh, quite optimistic for the future, and I want to join in on that bandwagon to help make things better. Dr. Wesson, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Uh, it was my pleasure, and I look forward to our talk this again. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.